Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this special episode, we review the first 10 years of the VFL. My plan is to do one of these supplementary shows across every 10 episodes. It gives us a chance to look at some of the emerging trends across the seasons, rather than just looking at one year at a time. It is a bit of a clip show of the previous episodes, and there's also a chance to look at information that has turned up since earlier episodes were recorded, or maybe add a bit more context that did not fit in an earlier episode. I hope you enjoy it. The VFL had grown and prospered in its first 10 years, and was seen as the leading competition for the Australian game. Across the decade, every team, except Geelong and St Kilda, had played off of the Premiership. Geelong were runners-up in the first year of the VFL, before there were grand finals, and if the challenge system had been in place in 1901, they would have played in at least one grand final. St Kilda were the only team that had yet to reward their supporters with any sustained success. In this review of the first 10 years of the VFL, we'll look at three main areas. Firstly, the different final systems across the first decade and the different venues used for the grand final. Secondly, the efforts of the VFL to promote the game nationally and even internationally. And thirdly, the emerging challenge to the original salary cap, which, in an amateur game, meant that no one should be paid anything. This overlaps with another related trend, which was the influence of gambling on football. Let's have a look at the final systems used to decide the Premiership across the first 10 years. These are a good example of how the league was learning as it went, trying things out, and making changes when problems became apparent. Despite the objections of some journalists, most notably follower in the age, the league never implemented the simplest system. That is, whichever team was on top of the ladder at the end of the season would be the Premiers. This is the way that soccer leagues around the world have traditionally decided their Premiership. But in this instance, the VFL did not follow the example of the English Football Association. There are a number of reasons why. With only eight clubs, the season would be too short if the Premiership was decided after 14 home and away rounds. But there was not enough time for all clubs to play each other three times. This would have overlapped with the cricket season, and the cricket clubs had the grounds under their control. And the VFA had set a precedent. In 1896, the year before the VFL began, Collingwood and South Melbourne had finished level at the top of the ladder, on 14 wins and one draw each. Because percentage was not used to separate the teams on the ladder, the two sides were tied. A playoff game was scheduled and the crowds flocked to the game. The VFL clearly noted the potential of a playoff game as a crowd pleaser. In the first year of the VFL, in 1897, we saw the top four teams play a round-robin system over three weekends. Essendon were undefeated after three games and so claimed the Premiership. But this did not have the climax of a playoff so it was replaced the following season. 1898 saw the start of sectional games after the home and away season. For the next three seasons, there was an odd system where after the home and away season, there were three sectional games where the league was split into two groups and the teams that led the sectional groups would play off for the premiership. However, the home and away season was not entirely pointless. The team that was on top of the ladder after the home and away season could challenge the winner of the finals if they had been unsuccessful. The challenge system seems odd, given the final systems we are used to now, but it was really the original double chance. If you topped the ladder after the home and away season, and you did not get the premiership at the first go, you had the option of implementing your double chance, or, as it was known at the time, the challenge option. 
But the problem with this early version of the sectional games was that teams that did poorly in the regular home and away season could have a hot run during the sectional rounds and get the chance to play off for the Premiership, or even win the Premiership despite winning far fewer games over the entire season. For example, Melbourne defeating Fitzroy in 1900 for the Premiership when they only had six wins in the home and away season. 1901 saw the first version of the Argus system, named for the Argus journalist Reg Wilmot, who wrote under the pseudonym of Old Boy. There would still be a sectional round after the home and away season, but the latter would reflect the entire season of the 14 home and away games and the three sectional rounds. Then the top four teams would play off in semi-finals and the winner of the semi-finals would play off in a final. There would be no reward for finishing on top of the ladder after the home and away games, which, sadly for Geelong, they did top the ladder after the home and away games and lost their semi-final to Collingwood. They were not happy with this rule change and the challenge option would be back the following season. 1902 saw the start of the first amended Argus system and that's how things were up until 1906. There was a variety of venues for the grand final in the first decade. No venue in 1897, given no grand final, with the round-robin system. And then controversy in 1898, when the league assumed that the two competing clubs would be able to agree to a venue. However, neither Fitzroy nor Essendon could agree to a ground. The league stepped in, nominating the Junction Oval against the wishes of Essendon, who were threatening to boycott up until late on the Friday evening before the game. In 1899, the league changed the rules to confirm that they would be the ones setting the venue for the grand final, and they chose the Junction Oval again. They got a better rate on the gate takings, but they were criticised for choosing a venue that was not conveniently located for supporters. 1900 saw the more centrally located East Melbourne Cricket Ground, located where the Jollymont Rail Yards now operate. This was a more convenient location, and it also held the first curtain raiser to a VFL grand final a baseball match between South Melbourne and East Melbourne. Then, in 1901, the grand final moved again to the Lakeside Oval. One advantage of this ground was that both teams could play Skittles after the big game. The big move finally happened in 1902, when the MCG was selected. In previous years, it was not available given the need to prepare the ground for the cricket season. I've not been able to find any details on what changed, and given how much we associate the G as the home of football, it did not seem to generate much comment at the time. However, it did allow for substantially bigger crowds. Let's have a look at the efforts of the VFL to promote the game nationally and internationally. 1903 saw the first major effort to promote the game in Sydney, with Fitzroy and Collingwood playing a match for premiership points at the SCG. 20,000 people attended the game, with generally positive coverage in the Sydney press. An additional game between Carlton and Geelong was also held in Sydney in 1903. This match was originally scheduled for Geelong, but a train strike meant that the game was postponed. After the success of the Fitzroy-Collingwood game, the decision was made for the postponed match to be rescheduled to the SCG. Unfortunately, on this occasion, the weather intervened and the game ended up being played on a Monday in front of a much smaller crowd. A third game occurred in 1904, and the last game of the decade in Sydney was in 1905, although this was an exhibition match between Fitzroy and South Melbourne. 1905 also saw the first New South Wales-Victoria game played in many years. While New South Wales were never expected to win, 
and the Vicks did not try too hard, there was some positive reporting about the efforts of the New South Wales team. The VFL also donated £25 to the Queensland Football League in 1905, which has paid off in season 2020, with all Melbourne clubs being based in Queensland and the grand final heading for its seventh venue, the Gabba. And in 1906, with reports that President Roosevelt was unhappy about violence in American football and the arrival of a letter from Wisconsin University asking for information about the Australian game, the league took it upon themselves to write to President Roosevelt and sent him a copy of the rules. The much-anticipated international games between Australia and the US have yet to occur. Along with these perhaps optimistic attempts, there was also in 1905 the formation of the Australasian Football Council, with representatives from leagues and associations in all states and New Zealand. The VFL led the establishment of the council, which helped codify the laws across the various states and territories, helped coordinate interstate matches, and set up a process of interstate transfers for players. It was not always successful as it evolved its structure through subsequent decades, but it shows the league's leadership position in establishing such a national body in the first place. The final thoughts for this 10-year review will focus on the related challenges of gambling and player payments. The rules of the game was that it was an amateur pursuit, and based on the reporting in the early seasons, this did not seem to be much of an issue perhaps because of the limited amount of funds as Victoria recovered from the economic crash of the 1890s, but as crowds built up and gate receipts increased, the pressure was building to get the right player to help the club win. Melbourne made a strong commitment to amateurism, and that may explain why they were amongst the first to call for standardised financial reporting that could be audited by the league. When this issue was raised again at the end of the 1906 season, Carlton's delegate, Mr Chapman, is reported to have said, isn't this quite inquisitorial? We will see in the coming ten years while Carlton was nervous about such efforts. John Elliott was simply following the example of earlier administrations. But it was not just Carlton that had problems. There was also the issue of gambling. It would be raised several times across the decade, but no significant broad action would occur. On occasion, some players were accused of laying low and not making an effort in a game due to having been paid off. Perhaps the most controversial was Essendon's champion Albert Thurgood, who was investigated and cleared by his own club after having a very poor game in the 1902 Grand Final. He was cleared, but the relationship was soured. This is an issue that would become more explosive in the early years of the VFL's second decade. So the first 10 years had seen themes and precedents develop that would become familiar with football supporters across any era. There were the rule changes to open the game up and prevent congestion, complaints from journalists and letter writers that the game was not as good as it had been in the past, and a regret that there was a lack of long kicking and high marking that made the game better in the earlier years. Then there were the committee room coups and attempts to sack the coach, even though only one club had a coach so far. Overall, though, the game was healthy and the supporters were attending in ever-increasing numbers. Join me next time to see how the next 10 years of the VFL will unfold in grand final history. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, 
please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.